0: Hi, welcome to the show. Many of us who are reasonably educated and financially with it think we have a fair idea about money, how to earn it, how to spend it, and how much to save it. In fact, surveys show that Americans have grown more confident about their financial acumen since the market meltdown that ended in 2009. Perhaps because many of them were scared enough to take a good hard look at their finances, to read up a little on how to protect their finances, and are now under the impression that they are much more aware about money matters. But in reality, they seem to know less about the subject than they did then. You know, I just read some troubling conclusions from a long-running study by the FINRA Investment Education Foundation, which has been assessing Americans' financial knowledge, their attitudes, and well-being for years. The Financial Capability in the United States 2016 – is a study that's based on an online survey of more than 25,000 people. And while it contains some positive news about household finances, many of its findings are discomforting and suggest that misplaced self-confidence is putting millions of people at risk and making them vulnerable to major missteps and to the exploitation by the financial industry's so-called professionals who may not have their best interests at heart. Now, overall, the study found that most Americans have relatively low levels of financial literacy. It included the results of a basic six-question test. It's a multiple-choice quiz on fundamental financial issues. And the questions were intended to be very basic and thus easy, yet the average person got only about half the answers right. And uh, I think it's a good idea for you, my listeners, to also take this test and see how you do. The test has six simple questions and takes less than five minutes. The website address will be posted on our site. Of course, our site is onthemoneyradio.org. Don't forget the word radio, onthemoneyradio.org. Now, five of the questions have been on the quiz for years, which makes it easy to see how many people get them wrong or right over an extended period of time. It's a good gauge of the progress we're making on financial literacy as it relates to everyday money matters, and it makes statistical comparisons possible. But alas, the trend is not encouraging. The worst performance was on a question about how bond prices respond to rising interest rates. You think you know the answer? Do you? Well, only 28% of people in 2015 got that one right. Now, I know I've spoken extensively about the connection between bond prices and interest rates, so I'm sure many of my listeners will get that one right. I'm not going to give you the correct answer now because I want you to go to the site and see how you do on all the questions, but I'll give you a hint. Long-term government bonds earned over 15% in the last three months. How do you think that happened? Now, the sixth new question added to this year's quiz focuses on a problem that lands many people in trouble when they pay only the minimum amount due each month on their credit card balances. It's compound interest. So here's the question. Suppose you owe $1,000 on a loan and the interest rate you are charged is 20% per year compounded annually. If you didn't pay anything off at this 20% interest rate, how many years would it take for the amount you owe to double? Again, I'm not going to give you the answer, but I will say that most people thought it took much longer for your loan amount to double, grossly underestimating the impact of interest rates. That lack of knowledge could really hurt you. When interest rates rise, if you ignore compound interest, you can drown in debt. Also, an alarming aspect of the study is that although most people knew very little, they felt great about what they knew or what they thought they knew. Americans, you know, tend to have a positively biased self-perceptions of their financial knowledge, and the positive bias has been increasing. The study found that 76% gave themselves a very high rating on financial knowledge in 2015, which is up from previous years, and 81% of Americans rated their own financial behavior positively, but the study found a potential disconnect between perceptions and actions in day-to-day financial matters. Large numbers of people, for example, said they were running up late fees and interest payments on credit cards, overdrawing their bank accounts and borrowing money from costly non-bank sources. Now the good news is that many households are in better financial shape than they were in 2009. But then they ought to be because financial conditions are much better. In 2009 the prices of homes and most other assets had fallen sharply, foreclosures were rife and unemployment was soaring. People have been taking financial risks and they paid for it. In that period as an example only 24% of home buyers paid more than 20% of the purchase price as a down payment. So only one in four could come up with more than 20% down. By 2015, people were behaving more conservatively and a third managed to make that big down payment. In 2015, fewer people were having trouble paying their bills and more said they were comfortable with their financial condition. Still, the survey found that significant hardships continued and large segments of society continue to face financial difficulties especially minority populations and those without a college education. Most Americans are still worried that they won't have enough money to retire, but only 39% have ever tried to figure out how much they will actually need. When financial conditions worsen and whenever the next recession hits, indicators of financial well-being will decline, and unless the state of financial literacy improves radically, vast numbers of people will not be equipped to deal with these problems. That's why financial literacy programs in schools are so important and so helpful so future generations are financially better prepared. You know, in the world we live in, misplaced self-confidence can be dangerous. So please take the financial literacy quiz. Do all you can to educate yourself on financial issues relevant to your life situation. Read financial columns and... Look for those columns where readers get answers to some pretty basic everyday questions. And always feel free to get in touch with me through my website if you still have any questions on any financial topic. That's stevepomeranz.com. That's steve, P-O-M-E-R-A-N-Z.com. This week on the On The Money Minute, five steps to better credit. Hi, this is Steve Pomerantz with today's On The Money Minute. It's a classic catch-22. You've got to have credit to get credit. So where do you start? With step one in my five-step guide to building a strong credit record. But it's not enough just to establish a credit report. When you get credit, it's important to follow these key steps to net the best possible score. Make your payments as soon as you get your bill. If you push it to the due date, any little snag could cause you to be late. No internet access, ran out of stamps, got lost in the mail. Making your payments on time is one of the main factors that determine your credit score. A single missed payment can drag down your score. And the incident can stay on your record for up to seven years. Want more on the money? Don't forget to follow us at stevepomeranz.com. That's steve, P-O-M-E-R-A-N-Z dot com. Or Facebook.com slash the Steve Pomeran Show. Steve Pomerantz Show, and I'm Steve Pomerantz. Avi Lele is co-founder and CEO of Stockpile. Stockpile is the world's first gift card of stock. You pick the stock and the dollar amount, say 50 bucks of Apple, you pay with a credit card, and you end up with shares of real stock, or you can start your own collection of favorite stocks. This might be something that could be useful to you, so I asked Avi to come in and talk about it. Avi, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Steve.
0: So uh, congratulations first. Seems like you got something good here. How did you get started? Who were some of your investors?
1: Well, our very first investor was uh, Sequoia Capital. Oh. They kicked us off. In fact, we incorporated just to deposit their check. <laughs> and, <laughs> then, uh, <laughs> and then along the way, we got introduced to Ashton Kutcher, mm-hmm. who invested. And then more recently, Mayfield Fund led our Series A. Uh, we have Arbor Ventures, uh, Wang Ventures, and a few other Folks who have really helped us out. They're really an extended part of our team.
0: It sounds like that show, what is it, Silicon Valley, where there's a startup and they got their first check and they had to incorporate. So, <laughs> so
1: yeah, there's a, there's a lot of other stuff on Silicon Valley that hopefully uh, <laughs> we don't have too much in common with. But yeah, yes. right, right, right.
0: <laughs> so, what motivated you to start Stockpile?
1: Well, a few Christmases ago, I was tired of just buying more toys for my nieces and nephews. Uh, And so I thought, hey, wouldn't it be neat to give them some stock in their favorite companies? And I started off doing it, but the ones I wanted to give, I think at the time it was Apple and Google, were just too pricey. They were hundreds of dollars a share. And the process of doing it was such a hassle, I needed their social security numbers and other information I just didn't have, that I gave up and, and just bought more toys that year. But I couldn't really get the idea out of my mind. And I thought, you know, there's got to be a way to do this. And it feels like it's not just me who would want to do this. And that's really how Stockpile was born.
0: Yeah. So prior to something like this, you'd have to actually go in, open up a brokerage account, provide all your personal information, including social security numbers or do it online or whatever. And then you'd buy the stock and then you'd have to kind of get it physically delivered to you or to the person whom, you know, you were looking to gift it to. So how does this work? How does your company enable people to use a credit card to buy a gift card of stock?
1: Yeah. So there's two aspects to the business. One is gift cards. And so like you just said, you can give a gift card for stock to really invest in someone else's future. And well, literally, we've put the stock market on a gift card. So you could give your kids $25 a Disney or you know, $50 a snap or for graduation season coming up, same kind of thing. You can either come to our site and buy an e gift, and you literally just pick a stock, you pick a dollar amount, you tell us the recipient's email address, you can throw a gift message on there, and they get the gift in their email uh, a few seconds later. Mm-hmm. Or you can go to a grocery store or to our site, stockpile.com, and buy a physical card. Now, either way, whether it's a digital card or a physical card, the recipient redeems it by just typing in the claim code at our site, signing up if this is their first time, and then whatever. The dollar value is on the gift card gets converted into fractional shares of that stock. Okay. So if it's a $50 uh, gift card and Apple is trading at $100 a share, you get exactly half a share of Apple stock.
0: And I guess there's really no fraction too small in a sense, right?
1: No, you can, you can give $1 of stock if you'd like. <laughs> We've seen people doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can give uh, you know, a basket of you know, lots of $10 of uh, stocks just to get an instant portfolio.
0: Is it individual stocks only, or can you do exchange-traded funds and other things like that?
1: Absolutely. So a lot of people start off with individual stocks because they're buying what they're familiar with, but then we help them branch out and and show them what an ETF is for for diversification. You can come in and buy ADR, so you can get exposure to foreign companies. Uh, You can do a lot more than just individual stocks.
0: So when I go up on your site, how is it priced? When is it priced? at the point of purchase or that evening? How does that work?
1: Sure. So we do all of our trades using end of day pricing. It's called market on close pricing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when you put your order in, whether you're redeeming a gift card somebody gave you or you're just coming in to buy some stock for yourself, we'll take the price at the end of the day, 4 p.m. New York time. And that's what we use to figure out how many fractions uh, you get for the dollar amount you're investing. Right. So what's the cost? Where do you guys make your money? Well, we charge a trading commission, but it's not what you're used to seeing on the street. It's not the 795 or 595 that you're used to seeing. We charge 99 cents a trade. Uh, so whether you buy or sell, it's a flat fee of 99 cents. You can buy a little bit of stock or lots of stock, and it's 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 iTunes pricing. One of our customers called oh, it that yeah. and, and it sort of caught on.
0: <laughs> right. Except if you want to buy Apple, they got to pay a $1.29. instead of 99. (laughs) (laughs) See, I I just uh, increased increased your fees by 30%. There you go. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. So if I buy $10,000 gift card, it's still the 99 cents?
1: It's still 99 cents. You can't buy a $10,000 gift card. And the reason is we have Money laundering rules to worry about, so okay. the limit on our gift cards is a thousand dollars. But you can buy up to five of those, so you can give a pretty sizable gift. Mm-hmm. Nobody's given me a five thousand dollars gift yet. <laughs> if you want to be the first, <laughs>
0: yeah. My point was, it's still the ninety nine cents for each card. Exactly right. right. Cool. That,
1: that, that, that's right, and, and that's actually that's the pricing when you want to come in and buy stock for yourself. If you want to give a gift card, uh, the pricing is a little bit different. It's two ninety nine for the first stock, and then ninety nine cents for every additional stock.
0: Okay, so it's really quite affordable. So, who's adopting this kind of system? Is it, you know, older, you know, grandparents that are looking to give money to grandchildren, or is it millennials who's picking this stuff up for you?
1: Yeah. You know, when it comes to the gift cards, it's people over 30 giving to people under 30. Uh, you know, I'm giving out the gifts. My kids are just collecting them. They're not giving anybody a gift. <laughs> right. And when it comes to investing, uh, it's really millennials uh, and, and folks even younger than that, which is really kind of a breakthrough for us. Um, so 60% of our customers are under the age of 30 mm. and 30% are under the age of 18. In other words, kids or teens and really, the important thing is we're all told, hey, start early and invest regularly and diversify. If you start in your teens or your 20s uh, instead of your 30s or 40s, it makes a huge difference in terms of how much you're going to end up with. But most of us just don't have uh, the knowledge or the money to get started at that age. So we're, we're really working uh, on that angle so that folks can start really early and be engaged.
0: Well, that's our mantra here. You know, start early, do what you can, become a have, and not a have not. A have is someone who invests and takes extra money from whatever money they have, puts it aside for a long period of time, and that can potentially grow over the many, many years that that you might have. So, when I go up on your site, do I then see all the stocks that I have listed and their fractional amounts? Do I? see the total balance, and I can watch it on a daily or monthly basis?
1: That's exactly right. So you can go into the website, or we have an Apple or, or Google app, Android app, and you can go in there and take a look at your stuff. If you're a kid, this is a really kind of neat part of the experience. If you're under 18 and you're at a traditional brokerage, you don't really have much engagement with the account because the custodian, the adult, has, has the keys to the account. Mm-hmm. Here, if you're under 18, uh, we allow you to have your own login so you can check in on your stocks whenever you want, just like you were describing. My uh, 13-year-old daughter, she comes in and checks in on what she calls her stocklings. <laughs> 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 and so she has five or six stocks, uh, and uh, she checks in on them every day. And then she can actually come in and place a trade that comes to my smartphone for approval. Or, of course, uh-huh. I could say no. Okay. But the key is she feels like she's in the driver's seat, mm-hmm. but I'm the co-pilot, and she can't really get into trouble. Very engaging experience for young people.
0: So how do I redeem stock? How do I get my money out if I need to?
1: So if you want to uh, cash out, uh, you put in a sell order, uh, and uh, once the cash shows up in your account, you can just hook up your bank account and then move the money out for free.
0: Very good. My guest, Ave Lele, co-founder and CEO of Stockpile, and this can be found at Stockpile.com. Hey, Avi, thanks so
1: much. Hey, thank you. This was great. Really enjoyed it.
0: To hear more about this and to get the website and other aspects of this discussion, don't forget to join us at StevePomerantz.com. Are there any topics we're missing? Guests we haven't thought of that you'd like on the show? Questions you want answered? Contact us anytime at stevepomeranz.com. That's steve, P-O-M-E-R-A-N-Z dot Simply go to stevepomeranz.com and click contact to write us anytime, anywhere. Articles on the site you liked or didn't? Want to share your two cents? Comment on any of our guest interviews and tell us. You know, this show's purpose is to empower and protect you on all things financial. We'd love to hear your feedback so we can make sure we're getting you the information you need to live your one best financial life. Contact us at any time at stevepomeranz.com. That's Steve, P-O-M-E-R-A-N-Z.com. This is the Steve Pomerant Show, and I'm Steve Pomerantz. I can't tell you with any certainty whether the stock market is in a bubble, and neither can anyone else, including economics gurus and seasoned market veterans. I begin with this admission because I'm asked this question all the time, and it clearly has serious ramifications for my clients and my listeners alike. Now, even though we have decades of experience, expensive educations, and boatloads of information, At the end of the day, all anyone can do is to try to form a smart opinion about the possibility that the market is in a bubble. An opinion, not an objectively true conclusion. We can use market theories and history, circumstantial evidence, and data points to try to get at the problem of diagnosing a bubble. But the most important related questions, which stocks are in bubble territory, when will the bubble pop, how far down will it go, remain elusive. If I could answer these questions and predict their timing, I would mint a fortune for myself and clients, but there are good reasons why I'm not waiting around for that to happen. You know, it's common to hear people talk about such and such a bubble after the market crash as if it should have been obvious all along based on crazy price to earnings ratios or some other simplistic metric like all time high market values. However, in this case, hindsight may not be 2020 as we think it is. So let's ask the question, do P.E. ratios tell the whole story? You know, that price to earnings ratio thing you hear about. If you follow the financial media and its pundits at all, you'll hear a lot about how price to earnings ratio or P.E.s, as they're known, are reliable indicators of stocks being either under or overpriced or even in a bubble. Time and again, the market has defied the conventional wisdom about this approach to valuation there are a myriad of examples of publicly traded stocks with very, very high P.E. ratios and exploding stock prices. And looking at P.E. alone, many would say such stocks may not just be expensive, but full-on bubble expensive. While its stock price will surely fluctuate, though, betting against a stock could be very risky, too. The lesson, be careful about gauging bubbles based on P.E.s. Now, as you've probably guessed by now, It turns out that bubbles are difficult to describe and to quantify. Harvard Business School economist Robin Greenwood has made a study of the stock market bubbles his academic focus. In an interview with Bloomberg.com's podcast, Odd Lots, Greenwood talked about his efforts to come up with a working definition of a market bubble. He describes how most economists won't even use the B word because they're not convinced bubbles are an actual thing or that they can be rigorously defined, which in academic circles amounts to the same thing. By looking at the history of market run-ups and crashes going back a century or more, Greenwood has tried to uncover a criteria, a concrete set of measurable features that sets bubbles apart from typical bull and bear market cycles. Needless to say, P.E. ratios or historic high prices are not among these features. Among the most promising common denominators that he found in his research is something he calls acceleration and issuance. Acceleration refers to the increase in stock prices expressed as a rate of price increases. When stock prices rise by a certain amount, let's say 20% within a certain amount of time, let's say one year, and this is greater than the previous year's price increase, we can say that acceleration is getting faster. Greenwood argues that historic data show that unusually rapid acceleration is a signal confirming a bubble. Now, issuance is simply the number of new stocks entering the market via initial public offerings, or IPOs as they're known, and it also includes new stock creation from existing publicly traded companies. According to Greenwood, bubbles are marked by a big ramp-up in issuance as the market marches towards a peak. But not every acceleration causes a bubble because his research suggests that many market rises which then crash do not include these two characteristics and therefore don't deserve the bubble label. Confusing? You betcha. That's why it's so hard. Now, there are other features of bubbles which Greenwood is studying, some of which are harder to quantify because they're based on the sentiment of market participants. It's common to hear about bulls or bears capitulating or surrendering and selling everything at the bottom because the market has gone so far against their idea of the way things work. Greenwood talks about how sentiment among investment professionals shifts during a bubble's rise, starting out trying to avert away from risky investments by sitting on the sidelines to eventually but reluctantly joining in the risk-taking Because of the intense pressure they feel from clients to miss out on the tremendous gains in the market. Needless to say, many of these pros and their clients have been burned badly by showing up late to the party, buying stocks near their price peak. Despite the successes he and his team have had in defining bubbles, he admits there are problems with using their criteria as a tool to spot bubbles as they're expanding. He claims that his approach results in calling a bubble on average five months before it actually peaks. Now, while five months seems like a reasonable amount of time to do something, betting in either direction could be a risky move itself. Another way to approach the problem of bubbles is to view them as an inevitable part of the long-term market cycle. Sir John Templeton came up with a pithy take on the subject. He said that bull markets are born on pessimism Grown on skepticism, mature on optimism, and die on euphoria. Jeff Saut, the chief investment strategist at Raymond James, offered a more detailed description of the market cycle on minionville.com in 2013. And I'm going to quote and also riff a little bit on it as well. He wrote, stage one, shock and fear. Investors are deeply demoralized and they shun stocks. Rallies are shrugged off as fake recoveries. But eventually, bear markets make a more decisive break out of or off of new lows. Stage two, guarded optimism. Market rallies are still viewed by many as a brief chance to sell and cut losses. But corporate earnings are start to bring dividend seeking buyers back into stocks. Stage three, enthusiasm. Templeton's mature optimism, as he said. The economy actually starts to get better with the news backdrop going from bleak to better, which leads to greater enthusiasm and P.E. multiples and prices start to rise. Stage four, changing attitudes. Confidence builds, memory of the previous bear market are vanquished, and investors are carried away by feelings that nothing can go wrong. The widely held perception is that all stocks go up and all portfolio managers are geniuses. You also begin to hear stock tips from your barber or taxi driver, your waiter, and so on, on the hope that you will reciprocate and give them something as well. We start to see a lot of new IPOs and PEs blow out of proportion to averages as expectations for growth sizzle. Stage five, surrealistic phase. Exuberance abounds, new stock offerings are of questionable value, stock valuations changing hands at merely 200 times earnings stocks no longer bought on anything resembling fundamental analysis, older financial advisors start to buckle under pressure to invest in the new paradigm growth, a.k.a. bubble stocks. Investors take out more leverage for speculation. Businesses borrow via stocks and bonds and lines of credit to expand. Consumer credit and spending soar. Wall Street bankers and brokers revel in wealth and power. And finally, stage six disillusionment. The surrealistic phase ends with a bursting of the stock market bubble. The economic outlook proves to be not nearly as positive as been priced into stocks. Ultra-high P.E. ratio stocks are scorched first, then contagion spreads to blue chip and older stock names. Investors wrongly stay with losing positions, which actually could be sold at minimal losses, but investors cling to their losses when they should be jettisoned. All right, so to bring us back to today's market. Now, I speak to a large number of you, many of whom I hear from every day, concerned about whether the 2017 stock market is in a bubble, and I want to conclude with some recent comments by Warren Buffett on this topic. Despite the fact that P.E. ratios are undeniably high, right now they're 17.7 times projected earnings, which is the highest since May of 2004 and the fact that CNN Money's Greed and Fear Index has been flashing extreme greed in recent weeks, Buffett is convinced that stocks are still on the cheap side. The key, he says, is that interest rates remain extremely low. That makes stocks look like a good deal by comparison. If interest rates were 7 or 8%, these stock prices would look exceptionally high, Buffett said. We'll save explaining why he might be right on that point for another commentary, but suffice to say that betting against Buffett is not something we'd ever do lightly. So I'll continue to keep a wary eye on the whole situation for you. But remember, predicting a bubble is not really possible. So don't expect some bell to ring or the fat lady to start singing announcing the end of this current bull market. Terry Story and Real Estate Roundup is next. This is the Steve Pomerantz Show, and I'm Steve Pomerantz. It's time for Real Estate Roundup. This is the time every single week we get together with noted real estate agent Terry Story. Terry is a 28 year veteran with Coldwell Banker, located in Boca Raton, Florida. Welcome back to the show,
2: Terry. Thanks for having me, Steve.
0: I was reading an article that you had passed to me about distressed homeowners and. It was uh, titled Distressed Homeowners, It's Bankruptcy Season. Tell us what you know.
2: Yeah, I didn't realize there was a season for bankruptcy, but filing Chapter 7 bankruptcy is you know, a common form for individuals, and it comes with a season. And it goes with March Madness, which is kind of crazy. I have no idea why. But mm-hmm. what happens is it's tied into their tax returns. And those that are anticipating a tax refund, they take those funds and they they use it to hire an attorney to file bankruptcy. Yeah. So that's why it seems to happen in the month of March. So, you know, the question is well, why are people filing bankruptcy? When does it make sense? Mm-hmm. And so, really, there is a time for filing Chapter 7 bankruptcy. It's when, a, you know, somebody is struggling and is overwhelmed with their debt. Here's a couple of ideas, Steve. Your problem debt is greater than 50% of your annual income. Mm-hmm. That usually means medical bills, credit card debt, high interest loans, or you see no way of paying off your debt within five years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another reason is debt is interfering with other parts of your life, such as hampering your ability to buy a car or save for retirement. Right. Of course, in order to file Chapter 7 bankruptcy, you always have to consult an attorney. Everyone's situation is unique and different. Mm-hmm. Sometimes this is beneficial. Sometimes it's not. There may be other ways to get you out of debt. So absolutely consult an accountant and an attorney.
0: The interesting part about all this is that on the surface, if you don't dig down any deeper, you think people get a tax refund, they'll use it to maybe to pay down a portion of their debt you know, or, or some other purpose. And you, you don't think about, well, you know, I, I need to file bankruptcy. I need to get out from under all these debts, but I don't even have the money to hire an attorney. And so the whole gist of this is that, oh, now I got my tax refund, I can hire an attorney. So that's that's why it's seasonal, because March, April, you know, is, is refund season. Right. You know, also, like Terry said, you know, we give incidental advice here. We are not attorneys. We're just kind of letting you know the generic, the general idea about, you know, when bankruptcy might make sense. But always consult an attorney before you do anything. Let's move on. As parents age and they pass on, They pass on their assets, and one of the assets they may pass on is a home. So that can create some problems. What are some of the hassles of an inherited home?
2: Well, you know, in this one particular article, they're talking about a home with a reverse mortgage where there's now absolutely no equity in the house. So here you are, your mother passes away, now you've inherited a house with no equity. Well, once you've inherited it, it becomes your problem. So it's important to, again, go consult an attorney, but you're responsible for, you know, paying the condo dues, taking care of broken pipes. Those have, you know, now become your responsibility and obligation. Mm-hmm. But there is a solution that you can do. It's called legally disclaim your interest, which is a simple procedure to have the law ignore your interest in the property, which basically is skipping you in favor to your next heir.
0: Yeah. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yes, let's back up. So basically you're saying, I don't want it. So just because you get an inheritance doesn't mean you have to accept it. You can disclaim it. You can disclaim. And by disclaiming it, it relieves you from the responsibilities. Of course, if you have brothers and sisters who are also part of the inheritance, you're kind of putting it on them.
2: Correct. You're passing the buck to somebody (laughs) else. So you pass it on to the family member you don't like. (laughs) But it, it is a problem for somebody. Yeah. So you definitely have to deal with these things. You can also then try... In this particular case that we're talking about, again, this is a property that has no equity. You can try to deed the property back to the reverse mortgage company, kind of like a short sale, Steve,
0: yeah.
2: or a deed in lieu of foreclosure. You're giving it back to the bank. Mm-hmm. In many cases, you know, if you think about it, the bank wouldn't mind having the property back. They've got all this equity. There's, you know, 100% equity in this property for the bank if they take it over. And then, of course, the bank reserves the right to foreclose on the property. So if you find yourself, first of all, if you ever inherit anything, absolutely consult an attorney. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, you do have some options with, with situations like this. Pass it on to somebody else to take care of.
0: Got it. So let's move on. You know, sometimes a home seller doesn't tell the buyer everything. And there's a question here. Should a home seller tell buyer about airport flight path. In other words, you're going to yeah. buy a home and, you know, you come at a period of time Well, maybe, you know, it seems kind of quiet, but, you know, maybe in the morning at 5 a.m. your windows shake because, you know, the airport is two miles away and yeah. you're right in the flight path. How much responsibility does a seller have to tell the buyer this stuff?
2: Well, the seller has to disclose anything that is not readily seen that can affect the value of the property. So, you know, if the planes are flying every day, every 15 minutes, that's kind of obvious. But if it it only comes at five o'clock in the morning and your windows are shaking and it wakes you up, that's something I would say you would be a little more obligated to disclose. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. As crazy as this sounds, I had a beautiful home that backed up to I-95, but there's all this hedge right behind it. And you would think it would be very obvious to people that it was I-95. Walking through a beautiful home, you step out. And it sounds like the ocean (laughs) (laughs) with the white noise of the cars zooming by on I-95. Right. I took the time to tell everybody, oh, by the way, that is I-95. Yes, yes. And surprisingly, it blew my mind away that so many people didn't realize that was I-95. yeah. Yeah. You know, because they didn't necessarily know where they were because they're in a car with a realtor being driven around. Right. Even though I found that very obvious, some people didn't even notice. You know,
0: I'm very sensitive to noise. So- let's say I go over to a friend's house in my neighborhood. I noticed not too long ago we were sitting out on the back and, you know, having a glass of wine and I heard all the street noise. Now we live in a kind of a gated community, beautiful trees all around the golf course as well. But what was I hearing? I was hearing really a major road that was maybe a quarter of a mile away. Yeah. And I guess they didn't care. I was disturbed by that. That would be something that I would want to definitely know was there. So, I don't know if the seller needs to disclose that. Just go out back and listen carefully. Buyer beware. Caveat emptor.
2: Right. Exactly.
0: Okay. My guest, Terry Story, 28-year veteran with Coldwell Banker, located in Boca Raton, Florida. And she can be found at TerryStory.com. Thanks, Terry.
2: Thanks for having me, Steve.
0: StevePomerance.com now features each week's show in shareable individual segments. Busy at work and want to come back to the show later? No problem. Every segment has a full summary of what was discussed, along with a transcription of the interview. You can read or listen to one of my commentaries. Hey, is there something I mentioned on air you want to find on our site? Well, you can search for it. So check it out and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear your thoughts on what you liked or what you didn't. You can request topics you want us to talk about and ask us questions. We'll get back to you, promise. And you can like us on Facebook, where you'll find out about upcoming events and subscribe to our podcast. It's all there at stevepomeranz.com. That's steve, P-O-M-E-R-A-N-Z.com. This is Steve Pomerantz, and you're listening to The Steve Pomerantz Show. How many times have you read or heard that in order to be a successful investor, you have to think long-term? Well, has anyone actually asked the question, well, how long is long-term? That's kind of a pretty vague phrase. Well, we're going to try to answer that today. So I've invited Dr. Craig Israelson to join the discussion Dr. Israelson is an executive in residence in the financial planning program at Utah Valley University and, among many other things, writes for Financial Planning Magazine. Hey, Craig, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you, Steve. Delighted to be with you.
0: So there's the question. Let me reframe it. I'm an investor. I'm working with an advisor. I'm reading an article, and the market goes down, and the advisor says, hey, Steve, you need to invest for the long term. Don't worry about the short term. What is he actually saying? Is he saying five years, ten years? Is he talking about thirty years or more? How do we figure out what the best outcome is with regards to how long you have to wait for this stuff to work out properly?
3: Right. That's a great question. In general, it's twenty five, even thirty years is really what's meant by the phrase Mm. quote long term. Why is it so long? Well, we've got natural fluctuations in markets whether it's the U.S. stock market or non-U.S. stock markets, in the bond markets, in the cash markets, real estate markets. So we have all these different asset classes that, in essence, are the ingredients of a portfolio. If you kind of think of portfolio like salsa, you have to mix all these things together. Mm -hmm. And all these different ingredients in the, quote, salsa, are moving under different economic responses, different economic conditions.
0: Drivers. And
3: so, Mm. you know, if you're investing in one particular asset class, like cash, for example, Mm -hmm. cash returns have been depressed for, what, seven, eight years. Mm -hmm. And so we can immediately see that the returns in cash right now, a savings account, are well below the average, because the average is around 5%.
0: Yeah. So wait a minute. So going back for the long term, again, there's that term again, we're talking your return on cash would have been around 5%, but nobody's getting 5% on cash for the last, what is it, almost 10 years, 9, 10 years. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a period of time where, very simply, you're getting a much lower than average rate of return. Exactly. Does that assume, then, that if 25 years is the period of time that some point, perhaps the cash rates will go well in excess of that 5% in order so I can get back to an average?
3: Yeah, and that's known as regression to the mean, and so as the return patterns of different asset classes, different things we invest in, as those returns fluctuate, they tend to fluctuate down, so they're below the average, and then they'll roll up and be above the average. Mm -hmm. The challenge with cash, the returns on cash, and think of cash as a savings account, is that when cash rates are high, so is inflation. Yeah. And so those kind of neutralize. Inflation neutralizes cash. And so a high cash return feels good, but the way we really measure these things is net of inflation, inflation factored out.
0: I remember back in the early 80s, I started. We had cash at 13% or money markets right. at that time, but inflation was running at 10 to 12%. Everybody was miserable. Prices were rising really dramatically. You know, because so cash assets don't really earn that much more than the rate of inflation anyway. So, right now, inflation's low, yields are low, it kind of goes hand in hand, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. And the same is not true necessarily with other asset classes, such as commodities does really well when we have high inflation. Yeah. Real estate tends to do better when we have inflation. Yeah.
0: Hard assets.
3: Yeah, right. I think it was you know, inflation fly traps. They catch inflation and respond to it.
0: <laughs> so we've got the salsa analogy, and now we have the fly trap analogy <laughs> from Dr. Craig Israelson. There's more to come, folks. Let's talk about stocks for a second. Everybody's always interested in that, and we've had a nice bull run for the last X number of years here. What, over a very long period of time, has the average for large Cap or large company stocks, U.S. stocks, been? Since
3: 1926, the average return is 10.04. So just call it 10. So 10%. Now that's ignoring inflation. Okay. If we factor in inflation, that return goes to 6.9.
0: Okay. So that's still a pretty good rate of return. So
3: 7%
0: over the rate of inflation. That can create some real wealth over that long period of time.
3: Oh, absolutely. And the key is long period of time because there are plenty of moments, five and seven year windows of time during the last 91 years where the return of stock has been well below 10 gross or seven net. Yeah, And that's why we have to hang in there.
0: So you've done some work on that. You've actually looked at all these time periods and I don't know if you did the 10-year, but I know I saw some information on the Mm 5-year about how many times, how many 5-year periods the market underperformed that long-term average and how many times it outperformed. Can you give us a little indication there?
3: Yeah, so let's first think about that in just gross terms. So inflation has not been considered. Okay. So with large-cap stock, over the last 91 years, we have all these smaller timeframes or smaller windows. So if we look at a five-year window, large stock, if that's your only investment, mm-hmm. has outperformed the long-term average, which is 10, okay. about 57% of the time.
0: Now, that seems right? So you're bad.
3: looking at five-year windows. Mm-hmm. So about roughly a little more than half of the time, mm-hmm. if you're investing for five years, you will have a return at or above the long-term average of 10%. And then the really crucial thing is to then realize if you invest for 35 years in stock, Mm -hmm. 88% of the time, those 35 year windows have produced a return higher or equal to the long-term average. So it's, it's, call it 90%, 90% of the time. If you hang in there for 35 years, you'll get a long term return. Whereas if it's only five years, mm-hmm. just over half the time, you'll hit a, quote, long-term return.
0: Well, if I operated a casino and my odds were 57%, I would feel pretty good about that, I think, even over a shorter period of time. Of course, I would love to have 90% as well. But I don't think it's just a question of periods that are outperforming. I think it's the magnitude, and especially yeah. when it comes to the underperforming. So let's talk about the other side of the coin. So, we've got this time when the markets are outperforming this long term average. What happens when they underperform?
3: That's what's really dramatic. So, as we talk about, you know, half the time you underperform if you're only hanging in there for five years. Yeah. 90% of the time you're achieving a long term return if you're in there for 35 years. Mm-hmm. But now yeah. what you're getting at is well, if you don't achieve a long term return, by how much did you miss? Right. And that's where it's dramatic. So take the case of just large cap U.S. stock. If you're in a five-year investor, you only hung in there for five years, and you didn't hit, you didn't get the long-run return, now the question is, by how much did you miss it? Mm -hmm. And it's by a huge amount, 800 basis points. That's 8%. Yeah. If the long-run return was 10, Mm -hmm. and you miss it by 800 basis points or 8 percentage points, you had a 2% return. So yeah. The shorter you hold the investment, the more dramatically you miss the long-run return if you miss it.
0: Aye. There's the rub, right?
3: Yeah. And as you hold it longer, you may miss the long-run return, but just barely.
0: Mm-hmm. Meaning that if you're below the average, it's not going to be anywhere near...
3: No, it's half, half a percentage point. Oh, half a percentage point. Half so, a percentage point. Yeah. So if you missed the long-run return and you're a 35-year investor, you got 9.5% instead of 10.
0: Okay. All right. So we talked about large-cap stocks. I think we're doing good here. By the way, my guest is Dr. Craig Israelson, executive in residence in the financial planning program at Utah Valley University and a contributor to Financial Planning Magazine. We talked about large-cap stocks. Another one of these categories or asset classes are small-cap stocks, quickly- Give us some of the stats on that, not too much.
3: It's pretty similar to large-cap. The differences are just more exaggerated. So if you invest only in small-cap stock and you're a short-term investor, meaning five years, you have a high likelihood of not achieving the long-run return because it's more volatile. So in other words, a small stock, you're only in there for five years, you just barely just over 50% chance of achieving a long run return, Mm -hmm. if you'll hang in there for at least say 25 years in small stock, you have a 75% chance historically of achieving a long run return. Mm -hmm. And if you miss it, so in those years that you missed the long run return and you're investing in small stocks, the degree to which you underperformed is larger than if you had been in large cap stock. In other words, small cap stock has more volatility And so when you're on the downside of that volatility, it's worse. Yeah, you could
0: be crushed. And because of this rule that, you know, if you lose 50 cents, you've lost 50 percent. But to get from 50 cents back to a dollar, you need a 100 percent increase. It's harder to climb out of the hole than it is to get in.
3: Yeah, both mathematically and emotionally, (laughs) because we're sometimes paralyzed by fear when we're in that hole. And we make even worse decisions than we might otherwise make.
0: I know. Listen, I, uh, I deal with that quite often in my practice. All right. So we talked about large cap stocks, small cap stocks, bonds. What about bonds?
3: Yeah, we don't see as much variation in bonds because they don't have the volatility in the performance year to year. If you hang in there as a bond investor for 35 years, you have about a 56% chance of achieving a long run return. If you're only in for five years, you have a 44% chance mm. of achieving a long-run return. And a long-run return for bonds, historically, has been about 5.3% okay. if we ignore inflation. Mm-hmm. So it's really easy to just kind of remember broad brushes here. Stocks do about 10. Mm-hmm. Small stocks, a little higher, about 11. Mm-hmm. Bonds do about 5%. Cash does about, if you look at really long-term, about 35 If you don't look quite so long term, maybe the last forty-seven years, cash does about five, Mm -hmm. and so inflation is going to take roughly three percentage points away from all those numbers. So bonds goes down to about two point three, cash goes darn near to zero, and so forth. Mm -hmm.
0: I think there's it's interesting too because if you have stocks at ten, bonds at five, cash at three, there's like a fifty percent relationship between those. It's kind of easy to remember.
3: Yeah, that's a good observation.
0: Bonds do half of stocks, cash do half of bonds, that kind of a thing. I mean, just talking in broad. You know, one of the interesting aspects of the article you wrote, which attracted me to this whole idea and having this discussion, was that if you mix these four asset classes together, you have a portfolio that includes all of them. The rate of return over the very long period of time was nine and three quarters percent, which is just under the stock rate of return, even though a fair amount of your portfolio was not even in stock. It's amazing.
3: Yeah, that's the salsa effect. It's magical. I mean, there's so many ways that diversification manifests itself to us. We want to eat a diversified diet. You know, if we're an athlete, we want to have a diversified training program. Among our groups of friends, we have diversified friends. Mm -hmm. And then we get to portfolios, and sometimes people forget the diversification lesson.
0: Interesting. You know, there's an old quote from John Kenneth Galbraith. He said that when everybody talks about long-term, you know, it's like, well, in the long run, he said, in the long run, we're all dead. So, you know, I mean, your math is based on, you know, 89 years. I mean, that's ridiculous for us to anybody think. I mean, we live in a Twitter world we live in a world where, you know, long-term is maybe 18 months.
3: Yeah.
0: We were talking off-air. You said, you know, it's like a microwave system for a crock pot world. You know, you need slow and simmer. You need patience. And I think that's why a lot of people will fail at being a successful investor because they don't have the patience.
3: I agree 100%. I mean, a lot of my work involves a lot of mathematics and you know, sort of complicated formulas, but it really doesn't come down to that. The crock pot microwave comparison is so appropriate because investing is a crock pot experience. Mm-hmm. And there's very few things, I mean, imagine putting like a butt roast in a microwave. Wow, mm. that is going to be a really bad thing when it comes out. <laughs> it's going to be a catcher's mitt. Right. And so. The essence of successful investors, I mean, the absolute essential characteristic is patience yeah. and diversification, and diversification requires patience.
0: Well, one of the problems here is that this kind of investing is very boring.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. And that tells you you're doing it right.
0: Yeah. So, if you, <laughs> well, that's the truth. I mean, if you could just stop, I always say that unless you're a teenager doing nothing is actually an act of decision. You know. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, as a grown-up, doing you think about it, you think about what the consequences of acting are, you then take a step back, you do the adult thing and you do nothing. Right. And that takes a lot of brain cell power and willpower in order to get it right, to be patient, but so many people just really can't do that.
3: Absolutely. And so use the Twitter example. So somebody tweets or whatever the, the right term is, I'm an old man, I don't know that, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So somebody tweets something out that's kind of offensive to you and it's aimed at you. What's the sort of natural man response? Yeah. Well, to fire back. Right. Well, you don't have to fire back. You can say nothing. Mm-hmm. You can respond with nothing. And that is absolutely an act. Mm-hmm. I agree a million percent. And as it pertains to investing, one of the things that, and I can speak unequivocally here that drives every financial advisor crazy is when the markets are on sale. They have gone down. The real estate market has gone down. The U.S. stock market's gone down. The non-U.S. Think of any asset class and they've gone down 20%. They're now on sale Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and people won't buy. They won't
0: budge. And the insurance companies are selling them guaranteed products right at the wrong time. Right, they're selling them safety. They're playing into their fears, instead of playing into this idea that now, if it's on sale, there's tremendous opportunity. We've got to wrap this up. I do want to tell you one quick story though. That Abraham Lincoln used to write a lot of letters, but he only mailed a small fraction of them. He would stick them in the drawer. So I think when something happened, he would have a visceral reaction, write it out, say what he had to say, but he never sent it.
3: Yeah, it was his catharsis. That's right. right. It was his catharsis to get that out of his system, to purge it. And he didn't send it because it wasn't the right thing to send. Right. But he had to get it out of his system.
0: My guest, Dr. Craig Israelson, Executive in Residence in Financial Planning Program at Utah Valley University, I'm an academic that writes about many wonderful things investment-wise, writes for the Financial Planning Magazine as well. Craig, once again, thank you so much for joining us. It was really illuminating.
3: Always a lot of fun. I appreciate it.
0: You know, I just want to remind you that any interviewee's appearance on The Steve Pomeran Show does not represent any endorsement or confer any opinion whatsoever, either positive or negative, by The Steve Pomeran Show or any media by which The Steve Pomeran Show is distributed. Thank you so much for joining
4: us. Investing involves risk, and listeners should carefully consider their own investment objectives and never rely on any single chart, graph, or marketing piece to make decisions. The radio show is intended for informational purposes only, is not a recommendation to buy or sell any securities, and should not be considered tax-legal investment advice. Please contact your tax, legal, financial professional with questions about your specific needs and circumstances. The information in the show was obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. All data are driven from publicly available information and has not been independently verified by United Capital. Neither United Capital nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. United Capital is not giving tax, legal, investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with United Capital.